0: Welcome to A Matter of Principles, a podcast of the Association of Washington School Principals. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Arend, Associate Director with the Professional Learning Team here at AWSP. We are excited to bring you Inclusion 360, a special podcast series that will bring the inclusion discussion full circle. Inclusion 360 is the culminating event wrapping up our year of learning, exploring, and implementing inclusionary best practices and diving deep into how to be an inclusionary leader. This work has been made possible by a generous grant from OSPI. Our AWSP team has assembled some of the most dynamic and sought-after inclusion experts in the country to bring you this special six-episode series. This podcast series will feature Ladera Horn, Keith Jones, Dan Habib, Lauren Katzman, Alfredo Artiles and Glenna Gallo. Hey, and that's not all. On May 10th, you can meet this amazing team of experts for a free live webinar. You do not want to miss this event, so go to our website and register for the Inclusion 360 live webinar. For now, enjoy this podcast series. Well, welcome everyone. We are very excited for yet another session of AWSPs Inclusion 360 interviews with some amazing people that are the movers and shakers across our nation, internationally as well, on inclusion and inclusionary best practices. Today, I am beyond excited to get to talk with Dr. Lauren Katzman. Um, Lauren is the executive director of the Urban Collaborative and also the associate research professor at Arizona State University. For those of you listening right now, you are in for a treat. Anytime that we get to hear Dr. Katzman talk about her work, it's always, always a very, very good session. So we're excited for this today. Lauren is in sunny Arizona right now. Lauren, hello. How are you? I'm
1: fine in my 90 degree weather here in Arizona. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I am coming to you from not so sunny uh, Olympia, Washington where we might hit 46 degrees today. So anyway, it is good to see you and thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Lauren, um you helped us uh over about a year ago now when you were um A presenter for us at a a session at a summer conference, you introduced us to lots of great people. So a lot of this inclusionary 360 conversations we're having with these great people, you introduced us to. So thank you very much. But we might have some people listening right now that aren't aware of this amazing thing that is the Urban Collaborative. Would you take just a minute and kind of share with our listeners what that is and your involvement with that?
1: Sure. Um, The Urban Collaborative is an organization that started out with the title Urban Special Education Leadership Collaborative. It was a very long title, so we've kind of shortened it. Um, (laughs) It's an organization that's almost 30 years old. I'm the second director, and I started working with the organization about 20 years ago. What we are is um, what I would describe as a national professional learning community of district leaders across the country, over hundred school districts working on equitable and inclusive special education practices. So we get together with these amazing leaders across the country, share ideas, support each other, bring in other external people who are also experts to learn from each other. And um, really it's just a community of uh, people who are working very, very hard to do this work The other thing we do is we also go into school districts and do deep dives to help them figure out where they are and how they might get to um, a place of more equitable and inclusive practices for students with disabilities.
0: Wow. How often would you say the Urban Collaborative meets?
1: Pre-pandemic, we had two meetings a year, two national meetings a year in different parts of the country. The last one we had was in Chicago. The one before that was in Broward County, Florida. Uh Then the pandemic hit and we went to Zoom. We quickly moved to Zoom and we had meetings twice a month where we would get together and in the beginning, just talk about what was going on with the pandemic. What did we need to do? What were all these regulations and guidance coming down from the feds? What What was each state doing? Because in so many places across the country, everybody was figuring it out for themselves, whereas we could pull ourselves together and figure it out together. And just as an FYI, one place we looked to as a country all of the time was the state of Washington because Washington state seemed through through Glennagallo to really understand how to guide the state. And so a lot of different districts took the guidance from Washington state to use when they were trying to create their own. And so then we started meeting twice a month now we're going back to our large meeting Our next one is going to be at the end of April also virtual. And after that we're going to go back to online, I mean sorry in um, in person, excuse me, Mm -hmm. and it will always be a blended model so starting in December we'll have a national blended model meeting and because. We found that the Zoom meetings work so well, we're going to continue with our monthly Zoom meetings as well. Isn't
0: that great that, I mean, we're all kind of finding some silver linings by being thrown into this virtual world over a year ago and and how now many more people can access or participate. It's, It's actually a really great thing.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's as horrific as the pandemic is and has been, and that is the truth. Given that, there's a lot of things we've learned that I hope we continue. As a, yeah. as a country and in education, there's a lot of things that we've learned, and there's some good practices out there that I hope we continue with.
0: I, I agree with you. Hey, well, let's get into our conversation about inclusion and inclusionary practices. But, but, but first, what I'd really appreciate um, you doing is providing for our listeners a kind of historical perspective of special education civil rights, uh, inclusion, all of those things that have led us up to where we are today. Um, what I learned from you last year was that not a lot of, not just school leaders, but anyone it really has a deep understanding of that historical perspective of special education. And I know you are, you are very, very well versed in this. And so would you kind of help our listeners kind of get up to where we are to today?
1: So I'll start by saying special education is a civil rights issue. It started as a civil rights issue. The legal parameters are about civil rights. Um, The goal factually is about civil rights, and we've kind of lost track of that over the years, in my opinion. So special education started as an, um, an outcry of families whose children were in institutions. So if you had a disability back pre-1970, you were pretty much regulated to a residential placement. And these are kids with disabilities that you could see. Uh, at that point, learning disability, ADHD, et cetera, the, the more invisible disabilities weren't even acknowledged. But at the time, the people with disabilities were institutionalized or were not going to school. Pri- Pre-1970s, schools did not have to educate kids with disabilities, and some states forbid the education of students with disabilities in public schools. And so families of these children who were in um, institutions took their cues from the racial civil rights movement that literally action by action, word for word, copied the civil rights legislation or the civil rights um, the civil rights reform work. And so there were, there's mighty protests of people with disabilities um, to be independent. There were legal um, actions, lots of lawsuits, very similar to the civil rights actions and protests and, uh, and lawsuits. And so you have the 1964 civil rights legislation bumped into, let's say the 1973, section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which states the almost exact same language as the civil rights legislation, except instead of um, you cannot discriminate based on race, now you cannot discriminate based on disability. So 1973, section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act is a civil rights legislation. It is, you must do it, you have to, there's no choice. It is an unfunded legislation as well though. So in 1975, IDEA, what we now know is IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which started as the it, people from the past know it as PL 94142. <laughs> um, so the IDEA is a grant that funds that civil rights legislation. That grant, IDEA, comes with a lot of regulations. I think a lot of people now think of special ed as those regulations but we have to remember that it was a civil rights legislation. So you have the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education that says that you may not segregate schools based on race. You have the 1964 civil rights legislation. Brown v. And then you have the 1973 and 1975 special education regulations. Brown v. Board of Ed, the desegregation of schools was fought up until about the 1970s right around the same time that you have the special education legislation. So the implementation of desegregation racially and the implementation of IDEA started at about the same time. And so what also started about the same time was using IDEA or the special education um, law to resegregate students of color. So disproportionality of students of color and special education started at the same time. So when we when we look at the civil rights legislation of IDEA, we also have to know that it was born at the same time as racial desegregation, and they've always been hand in hand and used interchangeably for good and for bad.
0: Wow, that that was a, a very, that, that was perfect. You know, you gave us that from 1954 to, you know, when those two things merged together. Lauren, why do you think it's important, and I'm going to say should be required, for our school leaders to really understand this history?
1: If you don't understand the history, then you really don't know what you're providing your students. So let's take a white male student and a black male student, that, and you're, they have issues with um, behavior and social-emotional issues that white male student and that black male student are gonna have, typically will have different experiences. That white male student may get more supports and protection, whereas that black male student might get more um, disciplinary actions of suspension or restraint or seclusion, and they might be more likely to be in the school to prison pipeline. That is historic. That has been since we started special education. And so we need to know that so we can make decisions based on our historical knowledge to make sure that we do not hurt students by providing them with special education services. If special education is a civil right, we need to make sure it's used for that. And we need to know what the possibilities are and what the trajectories are that we are placing our students in, in order to know how our decisions might pan out later on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's just so important. You know, we, we just need to know where we came from so we can continue to have integrity around our actions for the in, intent and purposes of all of these um, legislative issues that were passed. So, so thank you, thank you for providing that real quick um, kind of historical perspective. Of and also education. if you're making
1: these decisions, you need to know, like you need to look at a child and say, let me take into consideration everything I need to know about the history to make sure that I'm making the right decision, even to give them special education services, because students of color are overrepresented in certain special education categories. That does not mean that they have more disability. It means that they are overrepresented and overclassified. They are over segregated in special education classes, kids of color, and students of color are also um, over disciplined. So we have to be careful of those things and make sure that we mitigate for that and make decisions appropriately.
0: Yeah, wow. I want to introduce you, Dr. Katzman. I shared that you are the executive director of the Urban Collaborative, and you gave us a quick explanation of what that is. You know, you work with over 100 school districts across the nation. What are you seeing? What
1: are you learning? I am learning a few things. I am learning that, first of all, so many of these leaders across the country are outstanding leaders. There is such quality and such expertise in the field. Um, And I don't know that I knew that the way I know that now. I mean, I knew individual people, but looking across the country, I am enamored by a lot of the district leaders that I have met. They are experts. Um, I am also, let me just say, enamored by the entire field of education, but in particular, special education over this last year. I mean, the things that they have done are and continue to do is literally mind boggling. They are beyond exhausted (laughs) and they are doing beyond miraculous work. You can I could never have. Unders- I, we could never have planned for the entire country to go one to one technology people mm-hmm. have been talking about it for years it's pretty much happened. Um, f- we could never have figured out how to just reach families, the way we're reaching them and these leaders have done that there is more connection with families than there was before out of out of necessity. Um, there is. There's just I'm just enamored by a lot of them so that's the biggest thing I want to say that I have learned positively is the strength of these district leaders across the country, and the want of all of them to do the right thing. That doesn't mean everybody is doing the right thing. I'm just saying there is a want and there is a, a hope and there is a push to do the right thing I haven't met many people who aren't trying their absolute best. OK, so I want to start by saying that um, I I see and I worry and these special education leaders also worry that um, we are what I was talking about with the with the disproportionality, that we are over segregating, over disciplining and over classifying students of color. And it's not that people want to do that. It's that the system's kind of set up for them to do that. And so you not only have to help people understand the issues, but there are systemic, um, there are systemic practices that need to be shifted. There are policies that need to be shifted. So there, it's it's systemic racism as well as um, just not thinking. But most of it is systemic. So there's a lot of systems to break down. Um, there, I also find that. Um, People who don't understand the the gravity of the decisions that we make. So again, the school to prison pipeline is a real thing. St- students' lives are in our hands, and um, I, I want I I see people really attending to that. I see people attending to that, but I also see a lot of the times that special education gets kind of thrown into the conversation and logic flies out the window. People think I don't understand special education, therefore it's your issue, as opposed to let's sit and talk about it together. Um, People get scared by the term special education. So one of the things I am learning a lot from the people across the country is that they're trying very hard to, uh, to share with their district the fact that Special education is not its own thing. Special education does not have its own curriculum. Special education is a support and a service to students in a district and to the school district itself. So to be able to be a part of the whole is what people are working really hard on across the the country. And in order to do that, there just needs to be lots of breaking down barriers, breaking down walls. So you can say, you do know how to educate this child with a disability. You really do. And, and we, can, we can talk about that.
0: Lauren, would you, can, I wanna back up just a bit. You said, and I think I, I think I heard you correctly, special education is a support for the district. Is I that- said special
1: education <laughs> is our supports and services for students, supports yes. and services for educators, you can write in an IEP that a, an educator needs to learn a particular skill to help a student. You can write in an IEP that if I'm the special educator, I don't have to do everything. So you can write in an IEP that a child needs A, B, and C. And as long as that child's getting A, B, and C, the gen ed teacher, the special ed teacher, whomever can provide it. Yes. And so it is a service in order to have access to the general education curriculum and succeed in their schools as they would if they did not have a disability. It is not a place, special education is a service. It is not a place. Once you think about that service, then you can think about where that service uh, needs to be provided. So when I go into districts and I say, what what services are you providing? I often hear resource room or I hear self-contained room. And I'll say, that's a place, what's the service? And people, many, many people don't know how to answer that question. To many people across the country, the place is the service. And then you go into that place and we need to know what the service is. And so the service needs to be specially designed instruction for those who need it. It also needs to be access. So if you have a child, um, a typical example I use is a ninth grader who's reading at a second grade level that ninth grader needs two things. One is that ninth grader needs to learn how to read at a higher than a second grade level. That you need to do, that that requires some expertise and you don't want to teach that kid to read in front of their peers. However, at the same time, they need access to literature. They need access to history, science, math. You don't keep them at that second grade level for everything else. You give them access to everything else. So both are equally important. I think we spend a lot of time on that skill and not enough time on the access. And that's a service that anybody can provide. Special education needs to make sure that it's provided, but we have all sorts of tools out there in the field to provide that. And many of them are free.
0: Right. Right. Um, I wanna I wanna kind of keep talking about this for a moment with this, you know, you have this experience uh, and the opportunity to. Um work with and reflect on all these different districts across the nation, and even just these nuggets that you were just man, you were just throwing those out like crazy, they were so good um, what are you seeing as real positive trends throughout the nation as we as we um try try to get to a whole understanding that it's a service, not a place. Are, are you seeing some positive trends um, throughout your districts that you're working with?
1: I am, I'm seeing, I'm seeing many in many places positive trends where people are, where special education is becoming part of the entire district. I'm seeing in, in many places at the district level where all the different divisions are collaborating and in different ways. Some places they're collaborating where all the people in charge of instruction, some places they're collaborating in different ways. But at the district level, I'm seeing a lot of places where special education is now a part of as opposed to separate. And I think that's really important. I'm also seeing a real push toward um, collaboration. And I don't just mean co-teaching because co-teaching is one form of collaboration. But collaboration, meaning that you're co-owning students, you're co-serving students, you're both responsible. Everybody's responsible. It's not my student or your student. So I'm seeing a move towards thinking a lot about that. There's been in the past a lot of put two teachers in a room and we're done. But that, those two teachers in the room could have two special ed classes going on in there. And, it, you know, it's just in the same space. But we're talking now about how to co-serve, which is the biggest part then co-plan, the next biggest part, then co-teach. Um, I, and I'm seeing people focus on that a little more. So I'm seeing that is one thing. I am seeing um, a focus on equity in many districts and in not all of them, but in many of those districts, disabilities become part of diversity, which is exactly right. If you put it in the pot as with diversity, it's, it's a positive aspect of diversity and it is an aspect of diversity that we need to make sure that we attend to in our schools. I'm seeing districts disaggregate their information by when they're focusing on equity by race and disability now, not just one or the other. And then within disability disaggregating by race and disability. So you can really kind of peek under the hood and see what's really happening. So I'm seeing a lot of districts focus on equity and, and include disability in that. Whereas not so long ago, I would hear all means all and then special eds over here. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. That seems to be less and less. Um, the conversation seems to be more and more equity includes all for real. Um, I am also seeing a bigger focus on social emotional learning. Yes. Which is, is, which is huge because so many Students are, um, again, the disciplining and the overclassification has a lot to do with behavior. And the antidote to a, you know, a student's negative behavior is a positive school culture. And when you're focusing on positive school culture, you're not focusing on that child as you know, not behaving the way you want them to, you're focusing on positive school culture and also teaching those social emotional standards, like you teach reading standards, like you teach math standards, you're proactively teaching those standards, um, that is a huge benefit um, because so many students um, who are frustrated learning might be acting out. You wanna make sure that you're taking care of the emotional needs and uh, supporting them in that way. And that also often means supporting families too, which is a help to what we're doing. And that also decreases disciplinary actions, which we know don't work. A lot of the disciplinary actions that we're using, suspension, restraint, seclusion, expulsion, don't work. They don't work for the student. They also don't work for the school. It doesn't make the school um, safer or doesn't make the climate more positive. It doesn't work. And so we're, that's, I think, becoming more obvious and more than that understanding is becoming, I think, more than norm. I'm seeing it
0: that's that's really encouraging that you are seeing that and you know we are working hard in Washington state to really gain a good understanding of of inclusion what really does that mean i think we've done a really nice job of integrating but now we're we're really trying to figure out this inclusionary best practices and what does that look like feel like in a building and i i really um I wrote down what you said, well, I'm writing a lot of stuff down, but I wrote down what you said um, about co-teaching and and you said, no, it's, it's, it's not just co-teaching, it's co-planning, co-teaching. And then this word, oh, I circled it three times, co-serving the student. Dang. Um, Lauren, if you have not like, you know, said that in all of your other conversations, start saying it a lot because that is fantastic to co-serve which i think is at the heart of every teacher and every school leader wants to co-serve and collaborative and and you know everything we can to support uh, the student but it goes beyond just saying okay now we have a, two teachers in a classroom what are they doing so i really thank you for saying it the way you did
1: people often ask me like what, what's the one thing you need to do in a school and i have not answered that for years, but I'm starting to answer that now because that's often the question, what's the one thing, what's the magic bullet? And I always say there's no magic bullet, but I do think I have one. And I think the magic bullet is this, in my opinion, problem solving, like problem solve. The co-serving turns into how are you gonna meet that student's needs? Problem solve around students, problem solve around the kids who have the most complex needs and then see what happens. If you can meet the needs of those who have the most complex behavioral needs, reading needs, et cetera, not only will you work together as a adult staff to figure things out, that student will benefit, but then everybody else benefits as well. So if I have you know, the one magic bullet answer for me right now is have an attitude or a process or the ability to problem solve. That doesn't mean that you have all the right answers. That means that you problem solve. And if that's the culture of a school and the schools that I studied in the past that do this well, they problem solve regularly and they don't assume that they have any answers and they're not looking for quick fixes. They are problem solving.
0: So a true a true team serving the student through this IEP, a true team that wrestles with this isn't working. What else can work? What are the students needs is that's an exciting team to be on.
1: Exactly. Everybody's happier when you do that. I mean, it's, it is an exciting, it is exciting as the adult as well.
0: Yes. Yeah. You feel, you feel as if all of this, these ideas and the work and all of the the time is, is helping um, a student be what they, all they can be. I, I think that's, that's a very, very exciting picture in my brain of this team problem solving and in support of, of the students' sense of belonging and well-being, all, all of those wonderful things. So Lauren, what gets in the way? Like what, what are the barriers or what, what things get in the way of effective use of special education supports and resources and services in districts?
1: In, in your opinion, what are those barriers? I think one of the biggest barriers is being able to visualize it if you like i like i said earlier i think most people are trying to do the right thing and they are trying to do what they believe is the right thing what they can see is the right thing but many people cannot visualize how this might work and really believe that special special education as a place might be best for some students but they can't they haven't seen it they haven't seen that it could work they haven't heard from the students, heard from the adults, how it feels, what it's like for them, how it's better. And so I think think the inability to perceive what inclusive practices really look like, what equity really looks like, I think is the biggest barrier. Um, When I was in New York City, which is where I actually worked with Dan Habib and Ladera Korn first, um, we did this road show for all of the boroughs in New York City. And the Rocho was really to share a vision, a new vision and a new language and to think outside the box. And um, that was the first thing we did there. And I think that was important to just get people to see it differently and think about it differently. Um, just to connect again, I use a lot of Dan Habib's videos to show people what it might look like, because it's they're they're amazed um, that it can actually happen. They're surprised that it can actually happen, and so I think visualizing it, knowing it's real, talking to people who've seen it, who've been involved in it, um, I think. So I think that's the biggest impediment. I think the next biggest impediment is the focus on um, compliance indicators. Now, when I say that, people will hear timelines, etc. Honestly, the first compliance indicator that is required is to look at graduation data and dropout data, and then uh, assessment data. So people don't think of that when you hear compliance, because I would be fine if that's what we were focusing on. But compliance in many districts uh, feels like timelines, etc. And um, I think the the focus on compliance in that way has stifled people's imaginations and people's ability to say, we're in this for the student. Um, I mean, I think, and I think yeah. the fact that there is, um, there is so many, there are so many legal protections for students, but many of those legal protections are focused on things like timelines. And there's nothing wrong with timelines. I, I think timelines are great. I'm not trying to say they're not. We need to make sure we do things that we say we're going to do. But um, there's a, there's a lot of fear of litigation as opposed to let's use the regulations to support what we know is right. Lauren,
0: where do you, where do you think that fear of litigation comes from? Because that really that really it rings true to me. Um, that there is a, and maybe this is too general of a term, but there is this sense of uh oh, if we don't do this right, we're gonna we're gonna get in trouble. Which we need to do it right, but there there seems to be What I'm hearing you say is sometimes that fear of litigation can stop us or, or halt us in our, I'm going to go back to your magic bullet, problem solving, innovation, creativity. Uh, Is that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, think about this. Think about, I'll use an example, a different example to explain this. Think about standardized tests and student achievement. If you focus on the standardized test, the students are probably not going to achieve as much as if you focus on high quality education, then the standardized test would be something that they should be okay with because they've gotten a good education. Same thing, if you're focusing on those details of compliance, you're putting out fires all the time, as opposed to focusing on the bigger picture of what is the point of special education i mean the, the lawsuits and the and the compliance issues come because people are not happy with something they're not they're 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 not finding that the students are getting benefits so there's a frustration if the students are getting benefit and if we're really doing what's right for students those will go the those lawsuits will will diminish mm-hmm. you know who's bringing the lawsuits people who are unhappy with what we're doing so we keep doing the same thing over and over again let's broaden it Let's think proactively as opposed to reactively all the time okay
0: lauren i I, I want to keep kind of drilling down on this idea sometimes i i I get this sense that school leaders like and you had shared that maybe don't are not remembering that historical perspective of special ed what this really is this is a civil rights issue we're we're working for the kid and we all understand that but we kind of as a school leader can get in our head a little bit too much about uh-oh maybe I don't know all of the uh, laws around special education so I'm going to leave this um to the special education teacher or whatever that is I don't want to be out of compliance and so I really what you said around the people that are maybe becoming litigious are the ones that maybe are unhappy or, or maybe I'll say, um, um, maybe they're not informed enough of what's happening.
1: So I'll say one, let me, I, I can think of two examples to use. One is, um, when families are not happy with what's happening with their child and they don't understand what special education is, they often ask for more services, more and more and more services. And then if we're in a litigation mindset, we'll give them more and more and more services. But that's not often right for a student. More services means a more fractured day. It can often mean a paraprofessional next to a child all the time. And and so without an understanding of what special education could and should be those services, then we get into this whole, if we want more, 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 and then everybody wants more, 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 more. And there's no way to do that because then everybody's education is fractured. Then we're, we have too many services and not enough providers. Um, so to understand that special education should be targeted and a service and that it doesn't have to be provided by a particular special educator, then if you're looking at that versus listening to the more, more, more argument, then you'll be less out of compliance and the student will be getting more of what they need. Or another example, if as a student is not succeeding, there's an understanding, for example, that a paraprofessional assigned to a child is a good idea. So then you'll assign these paras to students and that becomes a, a litigation issue, whether or not that para is gonna get assigned to a student when really, or that's an answer to a litigation, that's an answer to a question, when really the research is pretty clear that that does not work for children, that you want to not do that. So when you, when you have educated families, when you say to families, here's the research on paraprofessional use, you're asking for the least qualified professional to work with the most complex student logically that doesn't work first of all second of all the research is pretty clear that in particular one on one paraprofessionals just don't let the student doesn't let the student grow nor does it let the teacher grow in how to meet the student's needs so a lot of the litigation pushes us into these practices that just put the bandaid on the litigation as opposed to providing a better education, educational experience or stronger special education supports and services for the child so we want to pull back from reacting to all of that and go forward in, in educating and in learning together and figuring out what's best and having conversations with those people who are unhappy. Having lots of conversations because, and listening to families, why are they really unhappy? You know, why are they really unhappy? When I was a special ed director in, in one of the districts I was a special ed director in, um, when I first got there, I would just sit and listen to families and. Most of them would just be upset and and thankful because they said I was the first person that just listened to them. And then we problem solved together and we problem solved with the understanding that their child was the point. And once everybody understood that, everything didn't have to be perfect. We were all Mm. trying, there's no one way to do this, but if you're in a relationship and you're working collaboratively with the families and they believe that you're really trying to do what's right for their child, and you have an open relationship where you can agree and disagree and talk and think together, then that litigation can go away. Even if things aren't perfect, then Mm -hmm. you're really trying.
0: Um, You mentioned the name Dan Habib and, and, and what you just explained fits so nicely with another conversation I got to have with Dan on that. um, And he really talks about the school and family connection and that um, and I'm so excited that the, both of you will be in our, on our live, uh, talk show here in a few weeks, but, uh, because it's all about that, it's about the, I'm going to, I'm going to try and summarize this. Uh, the problem solving is your magic bullet. It's the connection. It's the asking a question from the, both the family to the school and the school to the family and really authentically problem solving and focusing on what, what's the problem we're trying to solve and how would this best serve the student? Yeah. That's really, I'm excited for our listeners because they're going to be able to hear what Dan had to say and listen to what you say. And there's so many great connections. Um, Dan, as the, the, the parent of a student with a disability, you as a uh, past special ed director for a district, and now your, your work with the collaborative, I just think that's great and, and good, solid advice for school leaders everywhere. Just listen and problem solve. And a lot of magic can happen from that.
1: And let me add one other piece that I think people get stuck with. The IEP is supposed to support the right things to, to do the right things, as opposed to you have to follow the IEP if you don't think it's the right thing. So if an IEP is not right, then sit down and redo it together, as opposed to saying we have to wait until, we, we have to do this because it's written in IEP. Yes, you do. But if what's written in the IEP is not what's right for the child, then sit down and rewrite. And you don't have to wait to do that. That, that document is a living doc. Once that document starts, it's a living document. And it must be looked at once a year, but it can be looked at as often as you want. And so people th- think that they're tied down by it. It should support what we're doing as opposed to it. It's a legal document I wish every single child with and without a disability had. Mm,
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm so thankful that you bring this perspective of different districts across our nation, and your experience there at Arizona State University, and, and just your experience as an educator yourself and, into this conversation. Oh, fantastic for our listeners right now, and thank you. Um, all right, Lauren, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you a couple questions that you might not be ready for, so buckle up. Because here we go. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Here's one, and this is more of a a, just a Jack question. I'm I always I'm so curious what people are reading and learning. So, what's on your nightstand? Like, what what are you what are you reading right now?
1: Ta-Nehisi Coates' um, novel. Okay. And 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 I'm reading um, uh, Abolitionist Teaching by Bettina Love. I'm reading those two books.
0: Wow. Okay. So that's intense. I mean, yeah. So maybe as you are relaxing by the pool this evening, you're going to be reading a couple chapters. For those of you that are listening, yes, um, Dr. Katzman finishes her day in that uh, warm uh, Arizona air by the pool. So um, I don't know, right now a pool in the sun sounds really good to me here in 46 degree Washington. Um, here's my I next question for you. It's going to be 120 degrees in Arizona. <laughs> oh, um, I'll pass on that. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here's my final question for you. Uh, we have school leaders across our state, and 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 many other states that are listening right now, and that are going to join us for the live Inclusion 360 Talk Show in a few weeks. If you um, could give one bit of advice to a school leader who is going to implement inclusionary best practices and they're doing their learning on that. What would you tell them?
1: What would you want for your own child?
0: Ah, beautiful. Exactly. Frame all your work with what would you want for your own child? Oh my gosh, Xenia, our amazing technician here today. She's applauding, she's smiling, as she's given me two thumbs up. Like, whoop, whoop, that is it. What would you want for your own child? Lauren, on behalf of the entire AWSP Inclusionary Team, we love talking to you. We love what you help us learn and areas that you help us grow in and and thank you for your time we do like i keep saying we do get to hear from you again and all these people you've introduced us to in a few weeks on may 10th we'll do this live talk show where all of these great people i don't know if anybody i don't know if anybody will get a word in edgewise but here we go um it's going to be a lot of fun so thank you for your time today um and uh, we look forward to learning from you again thanks so much
1: thanks so much jeff
0: Want some support with your inclusionary practices work? Head to our website, awsp.org, where you will find a ton of resources, many of which were talked about in this podcast. You will find on-demand courses, videos to watch with your staff, workshops, articles, podcasts, and more. Can't find what you're looking for? Please reach out to us and we'll be happy to help. How about some professional learning that's relevant and fun? At AWSP, we believe adult learning should be fun and engaging, just like it should be for the students in your building. We promise to never deliver death by PowerPoint and bore you with sit and get learning. You know, a good friend of mine said professional learning equals self-care. And self-care, that's how you get your power back. So at AWSP, we are all about supporting you and partnering with you on your professional leadership development. You know, one size doesn't fit all. So we provide a number of different ways for principals, assistant principals to stay sharp and improve their skills. We offer content for interns, assistant principals and principals in all stages of their career. We do that in person when we can. And of course, online. From our cohort-based launching school leadership and building effective leadership networks to our video workshops, we've got something bound to be right up your alley. Visit our website for more information on engaging and dynamic professional learning. This series has been made possible through a generous grant from the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction, Inclusionary Practices Project. We hope you've enjoyed this special podcast series on inclusionary practices for the school leader. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for listening. To catch all of our episodes, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can watch AWSP TV and our other great video content. If you have ideas for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, shoot me an email at david at awsp.org. We'll do our best to make it happen. On behalf for all of us at AWSP, we hope you tune in again. Keep up the great work for kids, and we'll see you next time.